Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 8, verses, and I'm going to add one to what it says in your bulletin, 26 through 34. An angel from the Lord spoke to Philip. At noon, take the road that leads from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And so he did. Meanwhile, an Ethiopian man who was on his way home from Jerusalem, where he had come to worship. Um, He was a eunuch, an official responsible for the entire treasury of Candace. And Candace is the title given to the Ethiopian queen. He was reading the prophet Isaiah while sitting in his carriage. The spirit told Philip, Approach this carriage and stay with it. Running up to the carriage, Philip heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you really understand what you're reading? The man replied, without someone to guide me, how could I? Then he invited Philip to climb up and sit with him. This was the passage of scripture he was reading. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was taken away from him. Who can tell the story of his descendants because his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me about whom does the prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or someone else? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So the, the Reverend Alex Plum has been the Reverend Alex Plum for about two weeks now. Congratulations, Alex. <laughs> that happened just at the uh, annual conference. I, I honestly, I can't tell you how long I've known Alex. I, I met Alex years and years ago when I was looking for a camp counselor and somebody recommended Alex to me and so he came in and helped out with a week of, of, of middle school camp. Uh, this, this morning is sort of a homecoming for Alex. Uh, Alex didn't grow up here at Court Street Church, but, but just about. Um, Alex has got an awful lot of connections to Court Street Church, to our, our congregation. In fact, I found out about one just this morning. Uh, at some point, way back shrouded in the mist of time, there was a moment when uh, uh, the the president of the district United Methodist Youth Council was Alex Plum, and the vice president was Alex Neff, uh, and so they, these uh, these two fellows actually are, are reuniting a little bit this morning and, and reliving some old times. Uh, because it's Father's Day, though, I'm going to do the the six degrees thing through uh, through Alex's father to Court Street Church. So Alex's father is uh, is Pete Plum. Uh, Pete Plum was uh, uh, the first water crisis response coordinator that we had here in the the Flint 
area during the during the the first several months of the the Flint water crisis. Uh, Pete coordinated the United Methodist response, helped churches get water filters and water deliveries, and helped to arrange for people to have home water deliveries. Helped to uh, secure grants that came into the community to support those ministries. Um, Pete did that ministry out of uh, an office here at Court Street Church. We we invited him to have a space here at the church. Um, and and Pete, uh, when he would come into the church, he would always remind me that when he was growing up here in Flint, uh, one of his uh, elementary school teachers was a, a woman named Allison Green, who uh, many of you will remember was a, a lifelong Court Streeter and uh, passed away just uh, just a few months ago. And so Pete loved to tell me about that connection. And Allison would remind me as well. Uh, whenever Pete was around, she would say, you know, I was his teacher. She was very she was very proud of him. So Alex is Alex's family here at Court Street Church. We're excited for what God has been doing in his life. We're excited to hear from him this morning, and I hope that you'll welcome him with me, please, by putting your hands together. Good morning, Alex. Here we go. With you. Well, thank you, friends, and good morning. Uh, it is a blessing to be with you all. Jeremy stole my thunder a little bit because I did have a shout-out for Alex Neff in this thing, but I didn't know he would be here today, so this is an even better blessing uh, to see him again. Um, I do have many memories of running around this church as a young person, uh, exploring my faith and coming to terms with what it meant to be a called child of God here. And I give thanks for you and for the community of faith that you have been um, to the city of Flint for so long. Will you pray with me? And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So coming back to Flint makes me feel like I'm at home again, and I know this is true because of Coney Dogs. <laughs> I live in Detroit. I used to live on, right off of Michigan Avenue. On Michigan Avenue in downtown Detroit, there are two very popular Coney joints, Lafayette and American Coney Islands. Anyone been to either one of those places? People that go there talk about how great those Coney Dogs are, and in fact, they're not very good Coney Dogs. <clears throat> and do you know why they're not good Coney Dogs? They're not Coney dogs. They're chili dogs. You know a good Coney dog because it's made of really finely ground beef heart, right? You get a dry topping on it. I had my first Coney dog at Venus, which I just heard closed not too long ago maybe. Other folks talk about going to Angelo's. On, um, is that in Fenton? Fenton Road is Venus, right? Where was Angelo's at? See, you know you're at home. <clears throat> So I was telling my friend this, I was getting this argument again, and I was saying, you know, you wouldn't know because you're not from Flint. And he said, ah, so it's true. You can take the boy out of Flint, but you can't take the Flint out of the boy. I tell you that because that kind of saying, maybe you've heard that before, is a chiasmus. Now, I taught English when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. So today, you're going to get a little bit of an English lesson. A chiasmus uses a parallelism to make a point. It's a kind of repetition. Cicero said something once like, um, you shouldn't live to eat. You should eat to live, right? You're familiar with that kind of phrasing. It's a way that you make a point. You try to draw. A, a, his point was about living simply. Now, if this were English class, I'd have you all practice writing your own kind of chiasmus, and then we'd ask you to volunteer. We'd start with Pastor Jeremy because he's got a good penchant for words. I bring up this chiasmus because it's the literary structure that was in our passage today in Acts. Now, you only got the first half of it, um, but it's a point that Luke uses when telling a story because he's trying to make a point, in the time when Luke was writing the book of Acts, people knew that the way that story got told had in of itself a message. 
So the chiastic pattern was designed to have these series of parallel structures that when you read it would take you to a middle point, a central point of the story. And then as it wound its way back to the conclusion, you would have the parallels start hitting each time. So you only got the first half, but let me point out a few things about this structure. And I'm glad that, uh, that we got the first verse, verse 26, um, this morning. The first three elements of the story basically go like this. First, you have an angel of the Lord who tells Philip to get up and go from Samaria south to Gaza. That's one. Go south from Samaria to Gaza. Second, we have an Ethiopian. He's on a journey. He's reading scripture, right? He's worshiping and reading scripture. Third, the Holy Spirit encourages Philip, who gets up and runs to the chariot. Okay? So hold on to those things. South from Samaria to Gaza. Two, a eunuch worshiping, reading scripture. Three, Philip running to a chariot. Now, the rest of the story goes along. They have this conversation. We saw it played out in real time here this morning during the children's talk. We had this moment where they had this epiphany. Uh, we go on. The eunuch wants to be baptized. And then we get to the parallel structure again. What was that third thing? Philip running up to the chariot. Now, as soon as the baptism has happened, Scripture tells us that Philip was snatched away like that, in the blink of an eye, gone. And then what happens? The eunuch rejoices along his way, just like he had been rejoicing while he was worshiping God. And then the last thing, the Scripture tells us that Philip reappears, and he is now traveling back north from Gaza to Samaria from whence he came. So why do I tell you all this? Well, if you're a nerd like me, you've charted this whole thing out too, looking for that central point. What was the point that they were trying to make? The middle of the chiasmus in this story is the eunuch. He is the central figure. This is an Ethiopian. And though he may be a Jewish convert, which we would have to assume because he's reading scripture in a chariot, and I don't know about you, but if I'm on a long journey, the Bible isn't the first thing I take with me to be flipping through. He's an outsider in every sense of the word. He's considered in society less even than a man. He's a person whose skin shade was too dark, whose accent maybe was too strong. Someone, no matter his conversion, who is not a member of that Jewish tribe. And yet, Philip places him at the center of the narrative. It's worth pointing out that this is a person, in many respects, as a eunuch, whose sexuality has been robbed from him in order to keep him under control. Right? This is a man who works in a government. He works for the Candace. She's the queen of the Ethiopians. And so in order to make sure that he doesn't pose any sort of threat to her or the lineage which she may, may provide as the queen of this country, he has been disfigured. But as the New Testament loves to do, just like when Jesus saved a prostitute from an unjust, a heartless, a puritanical execution... Luke offers us a narrative of invitation, of reflection, and of redemption for a person whose sexuality has been used against him by society. Let me say that again. The story in Acts is a narrative of invitation, of reflection, and of redemption for a person whose sexuality has been used against him by society. So invitation, reflection, and redemption mirrored in the three statements, really the three questions that the eunuch asks of Philip. And his three questions are what I would like us to spend a few minutes this morning thinking about. How can I unless someone guides me? The first words we hear from the eunuch are in response to Philip's question, 
Do you understand what you're reading? While Philip's question is certainly invitational, so is the eunuch's response. He clearly didn't understand. He could have said he didn't understand and shut it down there. He could have lied and nodded his head and said, yeah, I think I understand what you're talking about here. But he replies with a question that invites Philip to sit down and share dialogue on what he'd been reading. As I was preparing this, I was struck by the similarities that the Holy Spirit was revealing in my own life with the narrative that Luke offers in Acts. As one who came to faith at the Swords Creek Church after having been baptized and grown up at the Flint Trinity Church, I struggle with making sense of a number of scriptures that folks have used historically to reflect a lot of negativity on LGBTQ people. After I came out as gay early in college, I entered my own desert road, like this eunuch did, traveling down from Samaria. As I pulled away from my church, as I pulled away even from my MSU Wesley group, really from a faith in a denomination because of the dissonance between being told on the one hand that I was of sacred worth and on the other, incompatible with Christian teaching. As I lost an authentic ability to create what it meant to be a Christian in me, I struggled to embody and enflesh what I knew and what I felt in my heart, which is that God was inviting me to serve God's church. But without a way of interpreting this, without seeing myself reflected back in others in a healthy and whole way, I was lost. I was, in a sense, very much like the eunuch, a spiritual pilgrim far from home who just wanted to make sense of who God is and what God wants for us. That is, until I met Terry Gladstone. Terry, for those of you who knew her, and I imagine some of you did, she worked right here in Flint at the old Detroit Conference office that's connected now to to um, the Bethel Church, what used to be Flint Central Church. Terry did a lot of things as a deacon in the United Methodist Church, but for me, the critical moment in my life, when I was on the verge of really not knowing what my future would be here in this church, it was as if the Spirit said to Terry, get up and run to this boy's chariot. Ask him, do you understand what God is speaking to you? And it was as if I replied to her, how can I? unless someone guides me. Who are the Terry Gladstones, friends, in your lives? Who are the Phillips who've run into your lives to offer an invitational moment to draw nearer to God? Terry gave me the chance to discern and apply my call by practicing servant leadership, first as a mission intern, later as a member of the Young Leaders Initiative in our, pro, in our annual conference, eventually even down the road to become a Peace Corps volunteer. I track the thread of servant leadership that has led me into public health, into global health, and now into the diaconate so that I can serve people on the margins of society. I track that thread back to Terry, who used God to invite me to rediscover my authentic identity in Christ. Now, of course, the invitation is only the first step. The second is reflection. Because after they sit and discuss the scripture, the eunuch and Philip, the eunuch rather, asks Philip a second question. Who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? This question is a question of reflection, and actually it's the critical one in the narrative that Luke gives us. This is the central part of the story. This is the point Luke wanted to drive home, that he wanted his audience to wrestle with. But why? What's the big deal? It's a question whose answer we already know. It's Jesus, right? You read it, 
Who is the author talking about? It's Jesus. Okay. Well, it can't be that obvious. Luke wouldn't have gone through the difficulty of creating this chiastic structure just to drop off and say, well, it was Jesus all along, da-da-da-da, wash your hands, get baptism, go on your way. There's always something deeper if we're willing to reflect and ask the question. But the emphasis in shifting to Philip's responsibility to tell the eunuch the good news about Jesus Christ, the key is telling the good news to a person this far on the margins. Remember, at this point in the church, we're only eight chapters into Acts. This good news being relevant to a eunuch, to someone that is an undesirable mate, someone who's been disfigured to subject him to loyalty and subservience, we're early in the church's history. The church right now is still struggling to make sense of how it is going to relate to people who aren't part of the Jewish tribe. Who is this community? How do they make sense? How do they relate to us as one another's followers of Jesus along this way? The truth is the church will struggle to make the good news relevant and in fact can't if it's unable to create space for people who look different than who they've always looked like before. Philip, though, had already rejected the society's definition of what is acceptable and unacceptable. Philip must have rejected the notion that society even gets to offer a perspective here. Philip, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had evidently done some reflecting on what the good news really meant because he broke through a major sociocultural barrier by sitting and dialoguing with this outsider, his brother. Theologian Robert Wall writes of Philip in this moment, the essential task of the prophet was to clarify membership requirements of those belonging to God sometimes in new ways that redraw Israel's borders to include the excluded ones. Friends, we're only one week away from Pentecost. The church is supposed to be on fire. The church is supposed to look like Philip getting up at the Spirit's heating and running up to the chariots that are on the margins of our society. Profound disagreements shook the church in its early years. Sound familiar? Today, friends, profound disagreements shake our own church as we are also not of one mind around what it means to be the church, who it means to be the church. We are at a point, a precipice, a moment of inflection, the very verge of schism, because our church can't get over its obsession with defining who's in and who's out. But for Philip, this was no question. Everyone, even you, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch. Also, did you get the point? How is it that he was able to speak the same language? There's something maybe about a tongue of fire on the forehead that maybe inspired him to be able to do this. This is the power of the Holy Spirit moving in this time. Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, no matter your sexuality, no matter your gender, no matter your anatomy, no matter your social status, your race, your accent, or any other factor, God loves you. I love you. And I want to invite you to know God too. Philip knew it wasn't his place to make any judgments about his friend from Ethiopia. He didn't care. He didn't ask about his new friend's life. Philip's mission, his zeal, his love for God, and his inspiration from the Holy Spirit were all focused on helping this man for this man's own sake. Friends, I submit to you that if the United Methodist Church around the world 
if the Michigan Annual Conference, if Court Street United Methodist Church took Christ's invitation to us to share the good news even half as seriously as Philip did, we wouldn't be where we are today. We cannot share the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord if we're going to put restrictions and qualifications and asterisks on just how much Jesus Christ gets to be your Lord. If we exclude people even a little bit from the full participation in the covenant community, then we, we, we the church, are robbing the good news from the people of God. And I don't know about you, but I will not and cannot and absolutely shall not deprive even one person of the good news about who Jesus is and who Jesus wants each and every one of us to be. Friends, it is, is it any surprise then that after Philip's invitation to study and dialogue, after the intense reflection that led Philip to the chariot and then guided the eunuch's thoughts as they traveled together, that the next observation that the eunuch made, that only the third time he would speak in this story, was to point out, hey, look, there's some water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Friends, the gospel is irresistible. When we are able to invite and reflect when we are able to speak and live an authentic witness of what being part of the covenant community, Christ's church, looks like. This is what redemption looks like. It was redemption for the eunuch whose baptism into Christ's family surely transformed his life and awakened him to the acts of grace that the Spirit just couldn't wait to pour into him. That redemption belonged to Philip too. As an extension of the early church leaders, even to the apostles who couldn't decide who got to be in and who had to stay out, Philip earned a portion of redemption for the whole church too. Because Philip was shameless on behalf of the gospel, he went out busting down doors to closets to make space for all of God's children around the table. Philip was out inviting people to know Jesus. Philip was out making God's grace manifest in the lives of people who had never been included before. Philip was out redeeming the church, friends. Philip was out redeeming the church. Three weeks ago when I got commissioned, the bishop laid his hands on my shoulders and prayed that the Holy Spirit would come down and empower me for the practice of the ministry of a deacon. In that commissioning moment, all of us were at the railing kneeling. We had our Bibles opened to a scripture that was important to us. I had mine open to Micah 6, 8. O mortal, God has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. But on the other side of that page was a postcard that I received. It was the first piece of mail I got when I was a Peace Corps volunteer. And do you know who it came from? Terry Gladstone. She wrote to me in that letter, she wrote some things about some things that were happening in her job. She, was, she told me about a trip that she was about to take to go, ta- to go visit her daughter, Mary, who had been living in Baltimore. And she closed her card to me by writing, wow, so it's true. Young people really are leading the way of making disciples and transforming the world. You can focus on that second part now. What Terry was telling me in the card and what I want to share with you now, friends, that the experiences that we offer to one another through our invitation and reflection can help us reclaim that identity of Christ, that through years of being in the church and out of the church, years of being in the world and around the world, of wandering on our own desert paths, 
can take from us, can blur in our minds. Terry was reminding me that the church was still a place for me. She'd reminded me that for so many years as a mission intern. And she said, now that you've reclaimed that, now that that's an authentic part of you, go and transform the world in the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, I rejoice with you that Friday you will be putting on Philip. You will be reclaiming such an important part of what it means to be the body of Christ for a group of people who have been marginalized and neglected by our church. But it can't stop there. Because as this new thing takes root in Michigan, as this new version of Methodism takes root around our connection, we will have to wrestle with what it means to draw our circle wide and our table wider still. Not just for the people who've been historically oppressed and marginalized, people of color, women, First Nations people. We have a lot of healing and reconciliation to do with them. But friends, even still, we'll need to begin to find ways to offer grace and reconciliation and wholeness with people who think differently than we do, who disagree with us on important matters of conscience. These things, how we learn to do these things, will happen because we're able to hold attention, we're able to invite, we're able to reflect, and we're able to offer one another redemption in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the church's sacred task. This is the church's only task. And if we can do this, friends, I know that the world that we create will be a world that makes Jesus Christ happy. May it be so. Amen and amen.